Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I learned a, uh, a, a, an exciting uh, n- new way to understand the Torah. Um, we call these things, a, uh, it's a klal, that means a, a foundation. And I heard this uh, from Rabbi Wolfson in the name of uh, the Chassim Sofer. And it involves the large letters um, that are written in the Torah. So sometimes in normal Torah script, you have, they're all pretty much of uniform size. But there, there are a few exceptions. They're, they're rare, but there are exceptions. Where a Torah is written, where a letter is written larger than it normally would be written. And in other instances, you have a letter that's written that's smaller than it's normally written. And so, um, the Chassim Sofer says something very interesting. Now, if you look, and I sort of study this a, a tiny bit, not, not, not extensively, but enough to know that, that everyone should just be aware that there are extensive, extensive um, regulations, halachas, re- regarding how you write each of the letters in order for a letter in a, in a Torah scroll to be kosher. And so it's very, very exacting. So now when you have a large letter in the Torah, it's written four times the size of a normal letter. And the Chassam Sofer adds something very amazing, which is that the gematria of that letter will also be four times what it would normally be. So you take the, so for instance, and I'm going to do a tour through some of the large letters of the Torah right now, and talk about how the revised gematria, in light of this, um, this insight that the Chassam Sofer brings, gives us tremendous depth and new meaning into the words that it describes. So we're going to go uh, chronologically, uh, just uh, some, some greatest tips anyway, which will be the, the base of Breshit. The very first letter of the Torah is a large letter, and that's going to reinform how we see the word Breshit and, and how we're supposed to interact with creation itself. Also in Shema Yisrael, which is the declaration of God's oneness in this world, the, the last letter of the word Shema is large, and the last letter of the word Echad, which means God is one, is also large. And so, so we're going to go through these three words right now, and then we're going to do something else, which is that we're going to take um, the Ayin and the Dalit of Echad, the two large ones, and we're going to see what that, that, that yields as well, because um, there's, there's a logic to that, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. So... Before I begin, let me just make a, a, just a quick overview of what Gematria is itself. Because I found that there are people who are, you know, very, uh, very sincere uh, students of, of God, let's say. And then you mention Gematria to them, which I guess the bad translation would be numerology. Because when I hear the word numerology, I think of like people with conical hats and crystal balls and like charts of, you know, the hand, you know, like how you hand read and things like that. And the word itself completely discredits the, the, the divine essence of it. And the truth is, is that, that that's actually a good thing. It should discredit it because in all languages, numerology is, is, is garbage, basically, to put it, to, just to say the simple truth. But in Hebrew, which is called Lashana Kodesh, which is called the Holy Tongue, and our tradition is that God spoke the world into creation using the Hebrew letters. Now, how you want to understand that, if, the way I understand it personally, is that the, each of the Hebrew letters stands for a different energy wavelength. 
And so that God combined all these different energies into the creation of the world. And they all have a correlation with the different Hebrew letters. That aside, the point is, is that the Hebrew language is the blueprint, is the DNA of all of creation. And therefore, the number that's um, assigned to each letter actually has a, a scientific meaning. It's not hocus-pocus. You're actually seeing an x-ray of the essence of the thing. So, so gematria is very, very real. And if you look at it in another way, you see, God gave us the Torah which is infinite, and the Torah itself is communicating to us on so many different levels. Like the musical notes on top of the letters, that's the trump. God is communicating us, to us on a musical level. In terms of how each letter and each word is formulated, God is communicated, communicating to us in the language of grammar. And God is also communicating to us in the language of mathematics. And that's what gematria is. It's the divine language of mathematics. And it's one of the levels to understanding creation, and one of the access points to understanding the deeper levels of the Torah. So, and in terms of correlations, if this word has the same gematria as that word, so what does that mean? You know? See, a lot of people take creative license with gematria, and that's not necessarily bad, because it's an expression of creativity in Torah. And as long as it doesn't contradict any, any um, foundational ideas, then, then there's something to it, right? God wants us to add our own self and to, to own the Torah, if you will. So there's, there's, a, there's a vehicle for self-expression. However, you know, some gematrias are better than other gematrias. <laughs> That's just the bottom line. And we have to understand that gematria itself was used by the sages in the Gomorrah also to derive halacha actual Jewish law. So in other words, the, the, the validity that this form of insight has is very, very great. And I'll give you one example of how far-reaching the, 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 the sages' relationship with gematria is, is that we derive, we know that there are, in terms of understanding um, the laws of Shabbos, we know that there are 39 different categories of labor that we're supposed to abstain from on Shabbos. And these correlate... Now, you might ask yourself, this is a side point, but it's fascinating to me. You might ask yourself, why 39 categories? Like, that's a weird number. Why not 40? 40 is like a beautiful number. Moshe was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. You know, we were in the desert for 40 years. 40 is like a really good number. What's, what's this 39 categories of labor? Especially since it correlates with the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, which was a microcosm for the entire world. So there's a very important number here. It should be something that's um, sort of aesthetically pleasing, if you will. Well, the truth is, is that there are 40 categories of labor, but the 40th category of labor, or perhaps the first, better, better put, is to make something out of nothing. And only God can make something out of nothing. Therefore, we don't have to worry about on Shabbos making something out of nothing. So we just sort of like put that one to the side, you know. You're keeping that one. Even if you absolutely don't keep Shabbos, I guarantee you on Shabbos you are not making something out of nothing. Okay, so you can at least take heart in that, you know. So anyway, so of those 39 categories, how do they derive that they're actually 39 categories? Right? And the answer is, they derive it from a gematria. 
So, and now when you think about how far-reaching the laws of Shabbos are, the fact that those 39 categories are derived by the sages from a gematria, from a word in the Torah, that's, that's, that shows you the, the level of validity that gematria has. Okay. So, anyway. So, just one... Yeah. So, this is something I was, I was wondering about. You could write a computer program that would go through the whole Torah, take every verse and come up with a number, and then give you a list of every word that has that number. Yes. Most of those words would not be good gematrias, right? Whereas the sages add a little bit extra to what that computer program, that hypothetical computer program would do. Well, I think, I think that the thing is, is that you have to, you have to know what, what the correlation is. In other words, pshat, pshat means a simple meaning. Pshat is not always going to be obvious. You see, so, so for instance, when you, when you make a gematria, um, so what you want to do is you want to say, this has a certain number, and this has the same number, Okay. So what you're doing is, is you're looking into the DNA of those two words, or those two concepts, and you're saying that there is a correlation between these two things. Now, there will always be a correlation between those two things. It's just sometimes it will be more apparent and more obvious, and sometimes it will be completely obscure. So, so that's, you know, there's no guarantee that we're able to access those levels of connection. And sometimes, by the way, You'll get something, I'll give you a famous example of this. You'll get something that's the absolute opposite meaning of the thing. And the best, sort of the classic example of that in Gematria, is that the word for Mashiach and Nachash, which means snake, which is the standpoint of the Yetzirah, which of evil incarnate, if you will, is the same Gematria. Mashiach, which is the great redeemer, and Nachash, snake. So how do you make sense of opposites in Gematria? So I'll share with you just my limited understanding of this, which is that basically you have a spectrum of meaning. In other words, that number gives you a spectrum. And, and there will be the most positive version of that spectrum, and on the other end you'll have the most negative version of that spectrum, of that spiritual idea that's being communicated through that number. So that would be the example, that the, that the most negative realized energy of redemption in this world would be Nachash. So, so it's not a contradiction like, ah, it means two things that are opposite at the same time, therefore the whole system is discredited. That's not the way to access this thought. That's a, yeah. For people who believe in the Enlightenment, the Nachash was correct. You, you are an individual. You can make choices. And you can do what you want. You don't have to follow this thing. So right. him telling them to do what they want in the Garden of Eden is a good thing. So, so that, that would be another way of putting it. In other words, that, that God gives us free choice, and that will be our, um, that, that idea of free choice will be our transition back into understanding the large letters, okay? But, but just to make the point, that we do have free choice. How we want to use the energy of that, of that concept is up to us. So in other words, sometimes we might be given a Mashiach opportunity. In other words, an opportunity to help and yet we use that energy of the moment for, say, selfish reasons. And then we're misusing that energy. So in other words, it's, it also, as you put it, hits on free choice. And, and so that, that, that would be another way to understand um, how this, the, the, a single word with the same gematria can have opposite meanings. So, so it's very, very deep. It's very, very deep. 
So now, with this in mind, let's get back to this foundation, very exciting foundation, which is that if you have a large letter in the Torah, not only is it written four times the size of a normal letter, but that letter will be four times the gematria, according to the Chassam Sofer, of what that, what that letter would normally be. So now let's start from the very beginning with the word Breshis, because the very first letter of the Torah is a large base. Okay? So let's begin with what, uh, let me begin with what my previous understanding was of the letter base, and just do a quick overview of that, and then we'll revise it in light of the large base, what we know about that. So, remember, the, the Torah itself is a blueprint of creation. It's, and so the, the very first letter of the Torah is exceedingly important. I mean, that's your entry point into your understanding of creation itself. So with that in mind, it's, it's, it's very significant that the first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez. And there's so much Torah on the letter Bez. I Like, lots and lots and lots of Torah. But let me just give you a quick overview. Bez in, in, in Gematria, since it's the second letter of the, of the Torah alphabet, it's the number two. Aleph is one, Bez is two. So we're starting with two, which God is telling us that when you look in this world, you will see a duality. You'll see, you won't see the oneness of God. God is telling you right at the very outset, you are going to see the illusion of two. And how does that express itself? What are the big twos in reality? Well, heaven and earth, the body and the soul, materiality and spirituality, man and woman. The oral Torah and the written Torah. And then I would say, most fundamentally, free choice. Because free choice is two. Why is free choice two? Because I can do this, or I can do that. Good and evil. So in other words, the very first letter of the Torah itself is giving you an overview of the human condition, of life in this world. So, but now, so that's all very good. And by the way, everything is predicated on free choice. God hides himself in this world. Remember, the Hebrew word for world is olam. The root of the word olam in Hebrew, ayin lamed mem, means hidden. Why, why does the word for world mean hidden? Because God hides himself in this world. Why does he do that? In order to preserve free choice. So in other words, the entire reason for the hiddenness of God is because of free choice. And that's expressed in the very first letter of the Torah itself, the base of Reishi. I can do this or I can do that. I can go either way, in either direction. Okay, now listen to this. But the base of Reishi is a large base, which means it's four times what it normally would be. So we just said that the gematria of the letter base is two, Times four equals eight. Oh, well now we've got a completely new understanding. Because what does eight mean in Torah? So according to the Maharal, eight means the infinite. So what is God alerting us to when he opens up the Torah? He's telling you, this world is infinite. There's the oneness of God is behind absolutely everything. Behind all the illusions of duality is the infinite oneness of God. Not only that, but you see a material world that looks limited, and you're born into exile. You just see brokenness in this world. 
God is informing us. Eight stands for Mashiach as well. Lamala Minateva, that which exists above nature. Because seven stands for the seven days of the week, the seven continents, the seven notes in the harmonic scale. Seven is this world, right? Eight is beyond this world. God is telling us from the very first letter of the Torah that I am implanting the end of days, the rectified world, into creation from the very moment of creation. So when you see duality, understand that it's impregnated with infinity, with Mashiach, and with oneness. So that's, that's what a, can you imagine everything that God, and there's more by the way, I'm leaving stuff out. That's, that's just in the first letter of the Torah. A whole overview of the human experience and of reality and the history and the destiny of the world. All in one letter. Okay. Now, continuing with this, I want to go to the Shema Yisrael. Because if you look in a Torah scroll, and even in most prayer books, when you see the Shema written out, you'll see that the last letter of the word Shema, the letter Ayin, is large, and the Dalid of Echad is also large. So, how can we revisit these two words, right, and get, with the, our new understanding of the gematria of these words, get an insight into what the sages are actually communicating. So, or what God is communicating, I'm sorry. So, Shema is Shin Mem Ayin. And the letter Ayin is large. So, Ayin, normally speaking, is the number 70. Okay, and that's, that in itself, let's just pause there for a moment. Ayin is a really interesting letter, because the name of the letter is also a word in Torah. Ayin means the eyes, basically, right? Seventy is the number of nations in this world. So we say that, that the eye sees multiplicity. In other words, that's, that's what the eye does to us. That's why when we shut our eyes, when we say Shema, and we cover our eyes, what are we doing? We're locking into the oneness that exists behind the superficial appearance of 70 if you will, by shutting the eye, which is seven, which is the 70 nations, right? We shut our eyes, and then we lock into the oneness when we say Shema. We say God is one. That informs the oneness that informs all of existence. Okay. Now listen to this. The letter Ayin is the number 70. 70 times 4, since it's a large Ayin, is 280. Plus the Mem is 40, that's 320. Plus the shin is 300. That's 620. So Shema equals 620. Now, remember, the word Shema means to hear, to listen, to comprehend. Right? It says, you know, listen Israel. Hear Israel. God our God. God is one. Okay? So what does that mean? Listen. What does it mean to listen? That's what we're asking ourselves. So we say that the gematria of Shema is 620. Well, 620 is a major, major number in Torah. And now I'm telling you what the Balaturim, it's going back about a thousand years now, what the Balaturim says on the number 620. Okay? And we're going to put it all together. So 620, amazingly, right, is the number of letters in the Ten Commandments, in the Aseris Adibros. Right? The ten utterances that God said at, at Mount Sinai. 
And we know that the entire Torah was contained in those Ten Commandments. So now Shema, we see, means the whole Torah, right? What are we supposed to hear? The whole Torah. But it goes further than that. 620 is also, says the Baal Torah, 613 plus 7. 613 is all the mitzvahs of the Torah, plus 7. 7 is either the Sheva mitzvahs b'nei Noah, those 7 mitzvahs that are incumbent upon the children of Noah and for all of humanity, or, put another way, the 7 mitzvahs derabanan, the 7 mitzvahs that the rabbis added. So that's Halel, washing hands before bread, the Eruv, Hanukkah, Purim, candlelighting, and Erev Tavshilin. So, that's, that's the entirety of the Torah. So we see, Shema means the entirety of the Torah. So all the letters of the Ten Commandments, which was a microcosm for the whole Torah, and all the mitzvahs of the Torah, plus including all of humanity and everything that the rabbis had insight into as well. Incredible. Okay, now listen to this. 620 is also, says the Balaturim, the gematria of the word Keter. Keter is the, means crown, and Kabbalistically speaking, it is the top sphere. It, it, it represents the top of heaven. So in other words, when we listen, we access the entire Torah, which brings us to spiritual heights, to Keter, all the way to the top. Not only that, but I looked into it a little bit further, and I noticed that the word 620 is also the gematria of Titaru, which means to be cleansed. And it comes from the central verse of all of Yom Kippur, that God is going to cleanse us from all of our errors. So in other words, Torah is not just the vehicle through which we ascend spiritually, but it is also the agency and the tool set through which we can undo any of our mistakes and be cleansed of wrongdoing. All of this is contained in the word Shema. Now Shema, one of the things that someone is supposed to have, that we're all supposed to have in mind when we say Shema, if you, it's a backward acrostic, the word Shema. Ayin Mem Shin stands for All Malchus Shemayim. Be, which means taking on the yoke of heaven. I'll translate that in a moment. So, when we say Shema, we're supposed to have in mind that we're taking on the all Malchus Shemaim. So, putting all these things together, what does that mean? So, uh, the word all means yoke. So, we don't use the word yoke in a non-egg related way, <laughs> much in conversation. But what a yoke is, is basically, if you can think of a kind of like a farming scene right now, that sort of contraption that's attached to the ox, which attaches the ox to the cart, so that, the, so that attachment exists, that's what the yoke does, right? So what we have in mind when we say Shema is, we're attaching ourselves to heaven. And we're saying, God, make me a Merkava. A Merkava is a chariot. A chariot goes in the direction that it's pointed. We say, God, I am your chariot. Point me in the direction that you want me to move in. So that I can do your will. So that I can perform your Torah. And so that you can flow through me into this world. And with that in mind, we'll do one final acrostic on Shema. Ayin Mem Shin. Arvit 
Mincha Shachris, which are the three times a day that we daven. We can daven all day, but these are the fixed moments of davening. Nighttime, afternoon, and morning. So in other words, that's, that's the whole idea of us being a chariot. God, you, I'm your creation. Flow through me. All this is expressed in Shema, through the agency of the Torah, which is the Gematria of 620, which we see stands for the Torah. Unbelievable. All this we see understanding that the large ayin should be multiplied by four, as the Chassam Sofer brings. Okay, now let's visit the word Echad. Echad has a big dollar. What's the, what's the Gematria, the revised Gematria of Echad? So let's take the old Gematria of Echad, because the old Gematria of Echad is pretty good, right? Which is, which is 13. And of course, the famous other number that's 13 is love. So, oneness and love is the same number, same essence, right? Because when you really love someone, you break down all of the barriers that are between you, and there's just oneness there. And God loves all of us. God loves the world as one. He's breaking down all the barriers, right? Unifying us all. Okay? Oneness and love. Okay. But now, in light of the Chassam Sofer's Claw, what's the new gematria of Echad? So, Dalid is the large letter. So, Dalid is four. Because it's the fourth letter of the Torah alphabet. So, so four times four is sixteen. Plus one for Aleph. That's seventeen. Plus eight for Chet. That's twenty-five. Now, listen to this. What's the connection between the word Echad being twenty-five and the simple meaning of the word meaning one? Well, listen to this. The world was created on the 25th day of El, Yom Echad. <laughs> right? Let's just backtrack for a moment. We'll unpack that sentence for a moment. So, Rosh Hashanah, we celebrate the, the birthday of creation. And a lot of people think that's the first day of creation, but it's not. It's the sixth day of creation. It's the day that human beings were made. So if the first day of the month of Tishrei is the sixth day of creation, if you go back, if you subtract to the first day of creation, you see the world was created on the 25th day of Elul. So the word Echad correlates, one, with the first day of creation. And the proof for this, which is really stunning, as far as I'm concerned anyway, is that you have a famous grammatical inconsistency in the ordering of the days in the Torah which is we say that the second day of creation, we say Yom Sheni, second. Yom Shlishi, third. Yom Revi, fourth. Yom Chamishi, fifth. Yom Shishi, sixth. Yom, Yom Hashishi. Yom Shvi, seventh. Okay, so second, third, fourth, fifth. So the, 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 the initial day of creation should be first. That would make it consistent. First, which means it should say in the Torah, Yom Rishon. And it doesn't. It says Yom Echad. One day. And then it goes second day, third day, fourth day. But it begins with one day. So you see, Echad, which is the number 25, which correlates with the first day of creation, the Torah goes out of its way to call Yom Echad. Because it says that that first day, God was alone in the world. It was only God. Shouldn't think anything came before God. It was only God. It was only God. 
Now, I want to go and, and uh, say something else. This is an exciting thought to me, and it will give you another level of understanding how gematria works. See, we have something called gematria imakola. There are many different systems of gematria. And if you think about it, you see, I just, I just want to tell you something, something, an idea that separates the, the men from the boys, as we say, in terms of how you approach Torah, in terms of scholarship and seriousness, right? You see, some people, some people, I guess because they're inherently skeptical, which isn't necessarily a bad trait. It just means that there's a, um, an analyticalness which has to be properly channeled. That's all. Skepticism means that there's a predisposition toward logic and concreteness and meat and potatoes and proof. That's all actually an, an excellent quality, excellent intellectual quality. It just has to, be, it has to be utilized properly. Once you accept that the Torah is from heaven and that the Torah is infinite, then you should also understand that God has an infinite number of ways of communicating this infinite teaching. You see? So that means that not, when I tell you now this new system of gematria, you shouldn't go, oh, now there's another system of gematria. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that would be a misuse of cynicism, a, a misuse of one's analytics. What you should appreciate is that, oh, God is giving me another avenue of understanding the infinite grasp of his Torah. That, that is the proper way to say, to, 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 to greet new information and new systems of understanding, if they are in fact Torah approved, and this is, okay? So another system of gematria, there are many by the way, is something called gematria imakola, where you add up the gematria of the word, of each of the letters, and then you add the number one for the word itself. In other words, the word itself is a unit of integrity which must be added to the count of the word itself. So, it's not just, um, well, we were one off, so let's add one and make it work. That's not what it is. That's not what it is. It's a different system because you have the individual parts and then the, and then the integrity of the unit as a whole. The way, the way it was explained to me, um, I heard this from Rabbi Pinchas, was, was that, you see, if you have four poles and then a flat thing on top of the four poles, right? That's a table. Okay? But why is it a table? All it is is just four poles and a thing on top of the four poles. But the mind looks at the unit and sees that each of the individual parts has an integrity when it's put together and that unit is significant. So that's what it is in terms of the letters in the gematria as well. Each of the individual letters has a number, and then you count the integrity of the word itself as a unit as well. So you add one to the word. That's the philosophy behind gematria makola. Okay. So now with that in mind, listen to this. You see, the sages point to the fact that the Shema has a large ayin and a large dalit. And they themselves, this is not me, 
they themselves tell you to read that as a word in and of itself. You understand? And what word does ayin and dalit spell? Aid. Aid means witness. Okay? So, so in other words, we're saying that God is one. That's what the Shema means. The whole world belongs to God. And then we are told to witness with our own eyes the oneness of God in our lives. Right? That's why it says aid. That's why it spells the word aid. By the way, it also says, Da, know before him who you stand. And the word da, and that, that, that pasuk is, that verse is also appears on uh, above many uh, Torah arcs. Da is daladayim. So in other words, the word to witness and to know are the, are the same things. They're related concepts. Okay. So now, let's just pause a moment to understand the implications of this in light of what we're saying in terms of the gematria. You see, there is no word in the Torah, in the entire five books, and as far as I know, in the whole Tanakh, there is no word that's spelled in large letters, all in large letters. Occasionally, you'll have a large letter within a word. But now, what we're being presented with, the implication of this, is that we've got a word spelled in large letters. Now, that would be, as far as I know, unique in the, in the entire Tanakh. And what is that word? To witness, to see with your own eyes the oneness of God. So now, let's see what the gematria of that is, times four. Okay? So, so ayin is 70, times four is 280, dalid is four, times four is 16, that adds up to 296. Okay? Now let's add one, utilizing this other language of gematria, gematria imakolel, and we get 297. Now, it came to me because we were looking at this word before, a few weeks ago, in a talk called Mastering Spiritual Highs and Lows, if you want to check that out. The prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel, talks about this incredible rhythm of the angels. And it's described as Ratzovishov, that the angels run to God and then return. And that basically the idea is that they, you know, there, there's such levels of excitement and clarity that they, that they run to the divine essence, to the light, but it's too overwhelming and they've got to run back. <clears throat> And this cycle of ups and downs, spiritual highs and lows, if you will, is something that we all experience in our own lives. And a lot of times we think, oh, I was so inspired last week or last month, or the holidays just came, I was so inspired. Now I'm such a low point. And you know what, maybe I was just, maybe it was all fantasy. Maybe I was making the whole thing up in my head. You know, I'll tell you something, just from my own life. One of the most heartbreaking things that was ever said to me. I was dating my wife before she was my wife. And, um, you know, things were going really, really well. It was a very fast courtship. The whole thing went very quickly. And, 
At a certain point, I, it was Lagba Omer in Israel, and I, we were in New York at the time. I really wanted to go to Israel. And, um, and I went to Israel, and just for a short trip. And I remember I, I had been there for a few days, maybe three days or something like that. And then before Shabbos, I thought, oh, you know, it would be nice to call before Shabbos, you know. So I called her before Shabbos, and she was heartbroken that I hadn't called her earlier. You know, and she, I guess just being a single, oblivious guy, I thought I was being a nice guy calling before Shabbos, you know what I mean? To wish a good Shabbos, like, the idea that I hadn't called when I landed and everything like that. Now, maybe because of the entrenchment of cell phones in our culture, you know what I mean? Now, maybe it's, this isn't as relatable a, a, an act of obliviousness as, as, as it was maybe 20 years ago. But anyway, whatever it was, it didn't seem to be so, such an extreme form of neglect, <laughs> You know what I mean? But anyway, I called and 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 Judy said she said, you know, I, I, I thought that you forgot about me. I thought maybe this whole thing had just been a dream, you know? Like this. And it I just it broke my heart so much. And I remember I was having Shabbos with with a rabbi there and I told him that story and he told me he said you should get the first flight back to New York after Shabbos. And I basically just got into Israel. And he said, get the first flight back in Marrier. You know, we hadn't, I hadn't proposed yet. And, uh, and I did. You know that? I did. I got the first flight back after Shabbos. Um, so, so anyway, sometimes... We think, you know, we go through spiritual highs and lows in our own life. And uh, we think sometimes after we leave our high and we get to our low or quote-unquote normal setting, default setting, if you will, we wonder, maybe I was just imagining that level of inspiration, like whatever it is. Tell you something very deep. Rav Shlomo says that there are two categories of sin, of mistakes, if you will. Wholesale and retail. So wholesale means a very, very big one. Retail all right, you did something wrong, it's not the end of the world. But wholesale, that's, that's, like, that's, like a, that's a big one. So he says, let me tell you an example of a wholesale sin. You're at the Kotel, you're at the Holy Wall in Jerusalem. You have the most amazing davening in the world. And then you finish and you say to yourself, okay, now back to real life. He says, that's wholesale sin. What do you mean back to real life? That was real life. What, like, that's like some kind of, like, you know, brain-chemically-induced fantasy, and now you're back into reality? That, you connected, that is reality, that's the essence of all reality. And now you're back to whatever it is, you're still within that same state, you're just accessing it at a different energy level. That's all it is, you're, you're more aware of the material and the mundane. But that's just there for it to be uplifted, that's all. Doesn't mean anything's changed. So we have highs and lows. And, and the reason why I'm bringing, and we haven't gotten to the gematria yet, but we will in a moment. The reason why I'm, I'm telling you that angels experience highs and lows is so that you should understand that that rhythm of going up and down spiritually is inherent to all spiritual creatures. That that is the rule. So that if you experience it in your own life, you shouldn't just say to yourself, 
I blew it. Because if I didn't blow it, I'd still be on the high that I was on Shabbos, or two days ago, or this morning. Highs and lows are part of life. That's, that's what it is. It's, 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 it's even among angels. Okay, so now, we said that the Torah is instructing us with the large letters of the Shema to see God in everything. And that the gematria of those large letters is 297. 297 is the gematria of the word Ratso, which is the angelic running to the extreme appearance of godliness in Shemayim, in heaven. So what does it mean to witness? Witness correlates with the angels seeing this awesome light in heaven and running, 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 running toward it. Flying, zipping, whatever, whatever the way to describe their aeronautics, right? They're flying toward the light. That's, that is the gematria of the word witness for us. To fly toward the light. And, and how much is God telling us that this is an imperative? It's the only large word in the entire Torah. And it's part of Shema. So God, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I was saying over at the Happy Minion that at the Happy Minion, prayer is a partici- participation sport. You know, in a lot of, in most shuls, like, you, <coughs> you just, you say the prayers. You stand there, you say the prayers, and then you're, you're done, you're done. But that's, okay, that's, that's one level of praying. But another level of praying is you're jumping and you're dancing and you're running and you're yelling and you're, you, you're, it's ratso. It's running toward the light. That, that's what it is. In other words, to, to, I don't like this word witness because it's got all this weird kind of connotations. I don't, I don't like that word. To see. But, but it means, what it means is, is that you yourself are really involved. And how involved? Like angels running to the light to the point where it's going to completely vaporize them so that they have to go back. You know, that's what is called upon us in terms of seeing God's oneness. But a witness in the law establishes the reality of the case. So right. You're witnessing for Hashem, you're establishing the reality that He's real. That's it. It's a very beautiful thing. That's what it is. So you know? Just to witness it. You know, they, they say that, um, I, I heard this said, I, 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 I can't tell you who said it, but, but I liked it. They said, you know, if you want to communicate effectively with someone, you have to be a cup that overflows. If you're just a cup that's full, that's, that's one level. But a cup that overflows. So in other words, how much is enough? What's the definition of enough? Enough is a little bit more than what you need. <laughs> And you've got a Torah expression, you've got a Torah proof for this, by the way, which is that it says that um, when Moshe was collecting the, um, the different contributions for the Mishkan, for the tabernacle, so gold and silver and colored thread and tapestries and copper and all these things, right? It says they had more than they needed, and then it says they had enough. So how much is enough? A little more than you need. You know, by the way, 
That's why the, the man, the manna that fell from heaven in the desert, was such a test. Because we just had enough for that day. And so you could say, well, look, you have enough for that day. But that's a little anxiety-making. You know in your own life, you want a little bit of a cushion there. And then that allows you to be a little bit more comfortable with what's there. By the way, one of the reasons why we light candles on Shabbos, this was um, pre-electricity, was that so that at nighttime when we had dinner, we could see our food. Actually, seeing what's there is a reassurance, and you actually enjoy your food more if you can see it. Because you realize that there is enough. That you will be satisfied. You're not just wondering, like, each bite. Was that the last bite? Was that the last bite? Was that the last bite? You get to see what's there. And, in, you know, one of these sages in the Gemara says that in terms of relations, men and women, sometimes the seeing is more enjoyable than the doing. <laughs> Oddly enough, you know, which is, you know, important just to understand what our natures are and, and what to stay away from. Why... Pornography, if you will, is so um, dangerous and so addictive to so many people because it really taps into something that's in our makeup that we have to be very mindful of and sensitive of in order to avoid. Um, so, so, in other words, God is communicating to us on so many different levels, also with the large letters of the Torah itself. And... We're so lucky. We're so lucky to have something so precious. And, you know, this, uh, this week we're reading Lech Lecha. And Lech Lecha is like the introduction of Abraham Avinu. So Abraham Avinu is with us. And these next few months, we're going to be living with Abraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov and Yosef and Yehuda and all the brothers. And we're going to be going through it all again. So, so thank God for that, you know. And I just look forward to... Uh, going through it all with you and sharing it all with you and and loving it all with you. And it should just be a great, great, great week. Amen. So I just just want to make sure that that last point was clear, what the correlation between overflowing is and witnessing and the correlation with the the angels running and everything like that. And it's fairly direct. What, What I'm trying to say is that that in order to testify to witness, to, to establish the reality of something, humanly speaking, it can't just be just like, oh yeah, th- that's what it is. That, that's sort of the level what I was saying about davening as a participation sport, or, or life as a participation sport, as opposed to just sort of standing there and just kind of saying, yeah, you know, that's what it is, I guess, whatever it is. That's an overflow that the, that the basic, that the basic um, definition of the word to testify, to witness, correlates with the angels running to the divine extreme light of Hashem. So if one, so God is communicating to us that if we want to be on the level of establishing reality through our witnessing, that it has to be in human terms on this level of overflowing, basically, of really running, of exerting ourselves. And that that, that's, that, 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 that level is, is demanded, de- demanded of us. So that the translation of enough for us would be really a little bit beyond, a little bit more than enough, a little bit more than what we normally do. And, and through that we can access all sorts of wonderful things and we can really reveal it. We're being given a key here. When we say Shema, that God is one, how do we reveal that oneness? 
through exerting ourselves and, 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 and like that, that will be the revelation of God's oneness when we do it in that way. Okay.